This is a neuroscientist talk shop, February 9th. Um, I'm Carlos Palladini, um, substituting for Salma Karashi. Uh, today, uh, we have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Peter Kalivas. Hello, Peter. Hi, how are you doing? All right. And around the room, we have Todd Troyer. Hello. Matt Wannett. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. All right. Um, as many of you maybe don't know, uh, Dr. Kalivas is from the Medical University of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. He is the uh, chair of the Neurosciences Institute there. Is that correct? It's the Neuroscience Department. The Neuroscience yeah, Department. The okay. Institute is a separate. Uh, separate thing. Entity. Okay. Uh, and um, he's uh, very well known for his work on addiction research. And one of the things that I became very interested recently as well is not only how addiction research um, has focused so much on just neuronal interactions, uh, so a lot of people um, famously look at um, different neurons around the brain, nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, um, prefrontal cortex, and find differences in uh, receptor expressions or differences in activity of neurons, um, but now, uh, more recently, a lot of people are becoming a lot more interested in not only neurons, but also astrocytes and also the molecular machinery of underlying the changes in receptor expression. And, um, and more recently, you have come out with some work on the actual extracellular matrix. So would you mind um, giving us a little bit of a background about how um, we've sort of evolved from being so neurocentric to... Um, adding glia and extracellular sure, sure. to the, to yeah, the picture. Pleasure, yeah. yeah, we're very excited about it. You know, mm -hmm. we um, it's a term that has not been used that much. You're just starting to really see it appear in the literature, although it was, uh, it was put out there about 10 years ago originally, um, called the tetrapartite synapse. So it's the idea that synaptic activity is um, maintained in a, at a functional level not just by having a presynapse and a postsynapse, but by having glia, which are closely associated with the synaptic cleft, in, meaning physically, or in proximity, and expressing certain proteins right in the vicinity of the synaptic cleft. And then between all of them, whether neurons and glia, neurons and neurons, in synapses, there's uh, the, the extracellular matrix, as you mentioned, and so that's the four components of the tetrapartite synapse, the presynapse, the postsynapse, the glia, and the extracellular matrix. And I think the historic focus, in my mind anyway, on LTP and the other measures of synaptic plasticity or synaptic activity being the pre- and the postsynaptic element only, it's because that happens fast. And you can measure it really easily, and you know, it pops like that in milliseconds, and so you can... It's, it's, it's easier to work with. We're all, we all sort of track the ball that's moving much easier than we do things that shift over time. <clears throat> the changes in glia, um, are not working generally on that time frame. Although there is the expression of glutamate transporters, which have to be there in order to delimit the diffusion of glutamate to the synaptic cleft. So there's certain maintenance functions like that. But the glia actually do adapt over larger time frames. And when you think about what a, for example, a psychiatric disorder is, it's over a long time frame. You don't just like wake up one morning and you're addicted. 
as a it's a long time frame as you drift shouldn't hit the table. Oh yeah, nobody can see that. Long time frame uh, that you you know you you use the drug before you finally uh, develop addiction, and it occurred to us that this would involve changes in uh, in glia, and then that led to changes in um, the extracellular matrix, which also <clears throat> that that's kind of in between. There's a short time frame and a long time frame for that. So just ongoing synaptic activity will activate. Um, uh, so at least some of the enzymes that regulate the extracellular matrix. So you think historically it's just been kind of a, a follow the mechanism as you get more and more and more techniques to get more details that you think about what else could be there and what else as you get into the processes? Or is it really a change in, I don't know, the way it's, whether we think about the brain differently or there's some particular thing that happened? Well, I think it's iterative, right? I mean, you, um, <clears throat> a new technique can come along, and that can cause you to see things that you never saw before, and you have to come up with explanations for it, and so that can lead you to reach uh, or incorporate new elements into a hypothesis that you never did before. So that can be done by a new technique. It can also just be a perspective on things. You know, somebody... you grow up in a lab and all you do is study in pre and post synapses and you know a postdoc joins you who studied glia and you know so they go well, you know you do know that these synapses are covered with glia that maybe they're doing something and so you know it's it's that process it's a it's both new technologies and then just broader uh communication more effective communication between scientists i think um causes us to have a broader perspective. I also think that the, in my opinion, the old empire building uh, doesn't doesn't happen as much anymore because things are moving so fast that you can't just go, I'm sorry, this is the way it is and this is all we're going to study because we've all, in, in if you've been around even for 10 years in science, you've watched all these houses of cards get blown down many times and people forced to incorporate new data that they had not predicted based on their models. And that's, so I think we're all used to the fact that we don't know nearly as much about the brain as we once thought we did. And so we're all just, I think the whole field is much more open to new things coming along than it ever was. Could you say something about what, about what they, brain extracellular matrix contains because you know we used to think about extracellular matrix in connective tissue or someplace and mm -hmm. learning the mm -hmm. constituents of it but the extracellular matrix in the brain constituents are not well known I think by yeah okay. by me either but <laughs> but yeah so there's you know the there are some um, matrix proteins that are definitely more abundant in brain there's as I understand it there's a little bit of uh, patterning to it, so different parts of the brain will have more or less of certain uh, proteins. It's not, there's no absolutes, as, as I understand it, as there are, say, for transmitters, like, you know, this neuron will only express these transmitters and no others, and these neurons, different ones. I think that the matrix contains, um, <clears throat> all over the brain, contains greater or lesser amounts of the same proteins. The one that... Um, that is involved in the signaling, we think, but for synaptic plasticity, um, is fibronectin. So fibronectin is the one that has um, 
because integrins seem to be involved. That's the, the surface protein that binds to the, um, the, uh, the extracellular matrix, and it binds a, a binding motif, the RGD motif, and that's contained in abundance in fibronectin. And so in synaptic activity, <clears throat> the matrix metalloproteinases that attack that are activated, and they'll cut the fibronectin, which then frees up this loose end RGD domain to bind integrins. And, and so, what, so what, that's what do you mean by RGD? Um, it's three amino acids. I can't remember which ones. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Whatever so, RGD stands for, I don't remember. Is it okay? Then it's, it's neuroscience, right? Not biochemistry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I should know that. I don't. Is the extracellular matrix we're thinking about in the synaptic cleft or in the spaces between neurons outside of it? Yeah, they're everywhere. It's everywhere, really. If you take any electron micrograph and start looking at sort of the um, the space in between that nobody really studies that much, um, and what you'll see is that that's all filled with protein. So is it more densely so at the synaptic cleft, though? I wonder if that... If it's a more density or it's different... It, the synaptic cleft is famously full of proteins in the electron microscope that every synaptologist knows and looks at those. The spaces, the other spaces, less so. I mean, it's possible to find things there, but they don't jump out and grab you. I wonder if this has is, is helping us to understand what the extracellular dense material is inside the synapse. Or, or it could be anywhere. It doesn't matter where it yeah, is. Um, is, is what helping us understand it? The, the, the stuff you're talking about, the studies of what of the like extracellular matrix. That it's involved in LTP and things like that? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's, <clears throat> in studying the extracellular matrix, it's very instructive to look at things like angiogenesis and development because in order for, <clears throat> for example, for angiogenesis to occur, the, cellular the extracellular matrix has to, to change its structure in order for things to grow. If you think of synaptic plasticity, and this is very, in the simplest form, it's, it's sort of this, the structural compartment that the synapse is in. So when you induce long-term potentiation, the spine head expands. Now, if it's fixed in a rigid grid of protein, um, it's, it's going to be no place for it to expand. So in the simplest way of thinking about it, forget about the fact that it's doing all this extra signaling, you basically have to loosen up the matrix in order for the expansion to take place. Um, in terms of, we know now that there's more going on because once you start loosening up the matrix, you create ligands that then combine to various proteins that then signal intracellularly. But um, does that get it? Get at your question? I wasn't yes, sure. Yeah. So, from sort of a philosophical standpoint, you know. Should we be thinking about the extracellular matrix as sort of the the gatekeeper for any postsynaptic plasticity? Like it, it is required yeah, to have so. that. And then along those lines, I mean, if, if there's going to be a morphological component, mm -hmm. yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you can probably insert a bunch more amphoreceptors and get an LTP event. In fact, we've seen that in. Um, <clears throat> just digress, just for a second. Mm -hmm. Interesting study. We haven't published it yet. The. Um, just how you get this transient synaptic potentiation when an animal sees a, a drug-associated cue and the synapses expand in response to that cue, which drives forward the motivation to press the lever to seek, seek the drug. If you take an animal that's been extinguished and you put them in the extinguished environment, 
<clears throat> so years ago, we and others showed that the projection from the infralimbic cortex to the shell of the nucleus accumbens is critical for the development of extinguished behavior, <clears throat> at least in the cocaine animals. And what happens, sure enough, when you if when they've learned the extinction, you put them in the the box, um, and then you take the accumbens out, the shell of the accumbens out 15 minutes later, you have an increase in AMPA receptors. But you do not have so and it's transient, so they're showing it like those AMPA receptors have to be inserted in order for the animal to manifest the extinguished behavior. But there's no associated increase in spine head diameter. There's no associated increase in um, at least the, the um, gelatinase MMPs, which are the ones that we measure with the fluorescent assay. So it is possible to get some changes in the brain without deconstructing the extracellular matrix, at least as far as those experiments would indicate. And this might be moving sort of beyond, I mean, the scope of addiction and, you know, uh, the realm of knowledge of anybody in here, but, but in some ways that seems to be a an attractive target for treating sort of, you know, psychiatric disorders that, you know, presumably are mediated by some sort of miswiring. If you can sort of make the brain in a more labile state mm -hmm. in some way, you could potentially be able to sort of form new synapses or maybe even, you know, regenerative sort of medicine. You, you can sort of see it. I guess, are there efforts to sort of exploit <clears throat> controlling this extracellular matrix to be able to put the brain in a labile state so to, to alter behavior or other sort of, you know, consequences? Yeah, definitely. So there's, um, in the simplest experiment, you can take recombinant MMP9, pour it on a hippocampal slice, and you'll get LTD, LTP. So that's... It's just a very crude, simple way to do it. You can, you know, perhaps more elegant. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's not my work, so I won't remember all the details. But you can put an enzyme in the prefrontal cortex or in the amygdala that degrades the extracellular matrix, and you can, I think, inhibit certain forms of learning, like probably fear condition learning in the amygdala and other forms of learning in the prefrontal cortex. <clears throat> so. There's nothing good about me inhibiting learning yeah. <laughs> therapeutically. But, yeah, those are, like, really just direct functional outputs that you can get from manipulating the extracellular matrix. I think therapeutically the problem has been because, again, cancer is, as always, way ahead of neuroscience. Um, and they realize that to stop angiogenesis, for example, into a tumor, maybe try to starve the tumor out, um, you, if you inhibited MMPs, you prevented that from happening. So there are a whole host of uh, the uh, inhibitors of these enzymes that break down the extracellular matrix have been developed with greater or lesser selectivity for one or another MMP. And because they're so ubiquitous, there's a, pro there's a side effect issue. And it doesn't, at least my read of it, none of them have ever come uh, out of clinical trials because of side effects. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a problem that they are so ubiquitous and that the extracellular matrix is so important and widely used and that there's <clears throat> there's overlap in the proteins. I mean, you know, I don't know about throughout the body, but in different brain areas. And so it's, it's hard to get the specificity, the circuit specificity, I think, that you might need for treating psychiatric disorders. But yeah, I think making the brain more labile, you might lose a lot of connections and things that you want to keep. <laughs> well, you turn them into adolescence is what happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Everybody gets to become a kid again and think about whatever they want. Whatever. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yeah. So one of the, I think, fascinating things about sort of your research, you've almost sort of come in a, you know, sort of a cycle here where, you know, earlier on in the early 2000s, you, you did a lot of work at sort of characterizing what you thought of as a final common pathway that you thought that, you know, yeah. a lot of drugs of abuse could sort of intersect in this sort of final common pathway to, to mediate reinstatement and the different forms of ways of modeling this, um, you know, in rodents. And the cool thing, and then a lot of your work then said, well, it's not always the same, but now you've sort of come back to, you know, when you're focusing on astrocytes, you're seeing a lot of the sort of similarities of the drugs and how they influence astrocytes. And I was just wondering if you might be able to comment a little bit on sort of what sort of changes you see in astrocytes and these sort of, you know, similar patterns you see across drugs of abuse and whether that also, how that is different potentially to, you know, natural rewards and potentially if you have any evidence on, you know, addict or, you know, non-drug mediated sort of addictions or say, you know, overeating and stuff sure, like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, those are all... Sorry, long question there. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of really good questions. Yeah, so the just to the the final common pathway, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of an old-fashioned idea given what we all know about the progress of science, but everybody's always looking for the magic bullet, right? And so that's kind of what a final common pathway is. Okay, this tear, this explains it all, and now this is the only place we have to target. So that's that's obviously a fantasy, but it's still... Um, it's still a way that we all think to some extent. We try to generalize whatever we find into being this very important thing. Part of it's for publication purposes, <laughs> um, you know, to try to get to make your finding as high and highest impact possible. <clears throat> so anyway, we've it, what continually happens in science, as you know, is you always have to retreat from your final common pathway and find a new final common pathway <laughs> because somebody proves that there's an exception <laughs> to the rule, right? Yeah. So that's you know, it's a living. But the, <laughs> the um, uh, in our own work, we've started to, it really started with, um, so finding that there were these, in, in the field of addiction, people, at first people started just looking at taking the drug. Then people started realizing, you know, well, we're interested in the long-term effects of the drug because there's an enduring vulnerability to relapse. That's the disorder. So they would train animals up on drugs, then they would wait, you know, a week, three weeks, and then they would look and see what's changed. And we and others started finding, because Coke was is the easiest drug to work with along those lines, and so we started finding, yeah, look at this, the spines are expanded, and there's an increase in amp and NMDA and excitability and things like that. And then, sure enough, you come along with heroin, and it's the, the opposite. <clears throat> and so we started realizing, well, that... If you're thinking of the shared pathology of addiction, which is basically this vulnerability to relapse, well, they should have something of a shared biology as well. And here you're having exact opposite effects. So obviously these enduring effects are not the underpinnings, or at least the primary underpinnings, of the relapse event. Um, and so then we, we started a few years ago to think that you know, what we're really interested in is the relapse event. So why worry about the biology of withdrawal when actually if we show them the cue and they're relapsing and then we harvest our our measurements, you know, we take the brain and, and then look at changes. And there's where we really started seeing much more of a similarity between the different drugs. And so now as we go forward, we really do 
two screens in, along the lines of your question. One is we do a sucrose trained animal in the, in the, in the queue as a control because if it's happening with sucrose, those we assume that it's not going to be related to addiction, even though you know there are thoughts of food addiction and things like that. But these are just sucrose pellets that the animals are pressing for. They're not um, extra palatable or anything like that. Um, and then we run coke, and then we run heroin, because coke and heroin tend to do very different things in the long-term biology, but <clears throat> they seem to do overlap quite a bit in the, uh, in the relapse event. So I think it's useful if you're actually thinking in terms of translation of your findings. Addiction gives you a real opportunity to look at very different and well-controlled pharmacological initiators of brain changes, and there's going to be a lot that's different because of the different pharmacology of the drugs, but you should be able to triangulate on what's really important. And so that's that's a strategy that we've started to use. Now, in terms of long-term effects, and you mentioned the glia, the um, one thing that does seem to be shared so far is the downregulation of, of the glutamate transporter, and that's enduring. So that that seems to be shared by drugs, so we think that that's a real important one, plus when we normalize that with the N-acetylcysteine or ceftriaxone or one of those drugs, it prevents relapse, Q-induced relapse, to all the different drugs. And so it, you know, we've kind of used these same basic, and none of that happens with the sucrose training, so use the same basic logic to sort of triangulate on even findings in withdrawal as well. And I think it's, um, people just aren't, aren't doing it that much, but I think that that really is the future because there's so much diversity when you get just look at pharmacologically induced effects you know, and, the, and the pathology at least as we define it with the the DSM criteria and whatnot is is a shared pathology with all these drugs. So now, and, now yeah. um, astrocytes are pa part of the pathway, but not only that, they are the final <laughs> the final They're the final, final common pathway. Yeah, is that nice? <laughs> You've got a new one. Yeah, it's got a new one. It's a whole different type. <laughs> well, of I will tell you this that we so far. Um, THC, the active ingredient of marijuana, um, does not appear to be downregulating GLT-1. Ah, okay. And that's, it, 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 I shouldn't say it does not appear to be, it does not downregulate GLT-1. We, we've pretty much finished those data. We don't know yet if it causes the glia to pull back. So we, we're just setting those experiments up. So if it, we're hoping, <laughs> if we're going to keep the glia as the final common pathway, that it, maybe they're not, because they don't like, um, as you know, maybe the, it's been very hard to set up a self-administration assay for THC because animals don't really like THC that much. And so they don't take as much um, as they do cocaine or something. So it could be a dosing event as well in terms of measuring the downregulation. But anyway... That's, that's, that's ongoing work. Uh, we're hoping to determine whether have the role that glia play in, in the marijuana use. The, the key ingredient to get them to like marijuana was to do what, um, you know, they do in Colorado and Washington, and I guess they'll start doing it in other states, is for the average person that's not just super into marijuana and looking for the highest possible THC content, most people prefer something that's got a lot of uh, cannabidiol in it because it's not, it's, you know, it, it, it allows you to 
go to the movies and talk about it afterwards. You know, you're not so zoned out. <laughs> and so that's what we started to do. We mixed um, cannabidiol with the THC, and, and the rats seemed to take that a little bit. So you talked about the translational component of your research and the fact that there's a lot of clinical evidence that suggests that N-acetylcysteine, you know, has, you know, positive results. And I was wondering if, but not everybody, you know, is that a silver bullet, your, you know, magic bullet? Like, is that something that, you know, there's a lot of heterogeneity in sort of a human population and also in sort of, you know, some rodents, you know, some of which in a population will be taking a lot of drug and some will be taking a little bit less. And I was just wondering if these changes that you observe, are these sort of, you know, baseline changes, will they help everybody or are they, you know, these sort of, you know, therapeutic treatments, are they sort of most efficacious for the individuals who are sort of on one end of the spectrum or? Yeah. So the, um, I'll just say two things on that. One is the, you know, the short access, long access types of studies. So in theory, the, the psych behavioral psychologists like to say is that you're switching from social use to um, compulsive use, right? Which is oversimplification, but that's that's you know what they like to say. And what has been looked at, and we haven't done this, what other people have found looking at the GLT-1 down regulation and things like that, is that it just gets stronger with longer access. So <clears throat> what little work is out there would indicate that this mechanism just becomes more solidified um, if they take more drug. And, and in as much as taking more drug is meaning they're more addicted, um, maybe that's, maybe it still is going to be important. However, the other part is the clinical trials. So the much more heterogeneous population. What it looks like in the clinical trials, and there's been a lot done, not just by uh, people at MUSC, but um, now all over the world, really, is that <clears throat> you pick up a signal in addiction, depression, PTSD, OCD, gambling. So it, it, it inhibits the intrusive thinking that's associated with this disorder. So in addiction, we call it craving. So a person just can't get that thought out of their head. In depression, you would call it rumination, um, where they just keep thinking about this depressive thought. Same thing with PTSD. They ruminate on the, the violent episode or whatever. And... NAC fixes that, N-acetylcysteine. They don't do that as much. Whether that's going to stop them from slipping into depression, stop them from taking the drug, stop them from having an anxiety attack um, if they have PTSD, there's a lot of other variables that go into that. So I think what we're modeling is not, and the, the biology that we've discovered is not addiction per se. It's what you call an endophenotype of addiction. So it's one characteristic in this case it's a trigger it's one of the triggers that if the person starts engaging in it they're going to be highly motivated to get the drug <clears throat> if they can't find any they're obviously not going to relapse on the other hand if you take somebody who's a 50 year old coke addict <clears throat> and they probably got a pile of cocaine sitting at home they can take all the n-acetylcysteine they want they're not going to think about it as much during the day but when they get home and look at that pile of cocaine they'll take it so, for example, in relapse, the clinical trials with NAC, the most successful trials, so they have, like I said, it works on craving with all the drugs and as near as we can measure, are with adolescent marijuana users. So it works really well in that group. And if you think about it, and this is, you know, there's a lot of experimentation that would need to be done to, to prove this, but um, adolescent marijuana users, probably their mom 
prevents them from having a big pile of weeds sitting on the kitchen table. <laughs> and so they're, and they're under, you know, they've got a lot of pressures to stop. So they have to really want the drug. So they have to really develop an intrusive thought to where they're going to sneak out of the house or whatever and go get the drug. So they're on this, basically on this drug trial. And so they're coming in twice a week. They're getting, there's a lot of attention being paid to their drug use. And NAC prevents relapse in those, in those kids. But you find no downregulation of GLT-1 with the THC, you said. Not yet. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. No, it's a good. But you point. haven't been studying in juveniles as well, so I guess that, that, that's, that's another question. That's a possibility. I'm I'm hoping that we're just they're just not taking enough THC. Um, our rats just do not like that drug very much. You know, it's even when we mix the cannabidiol in, they, <clears throat> if you didn't really want to see it, you wouldn't have to see them self-administering the drug. It's you know they just and you put them on an FR5, you know, to try to make them work harder for the drug, won't do it. <laughs> you, you need it in brownie format. It's a thought. You know? Maybe an edible format. You're right, right. I know. Intravenous is maybe not the way to go. <laughs> I mean, it's how they started with alcohol, right? The old studies where before they developed rats that would prefer alcohol, they would make they make pina coladas for them, basically, yeah. so they would take it. <laughs> so, well, one last question. We're going back to the specificity of, of inputs and uh, and the. Uh, connection of that with with astrocytes so and you mentioned uh, the glutamate transporter that's located in astrocytes the glt1 do you think that that glt1 then is actually um somehow modulating or, or facilitating those inputs that are active at a specific time and preventing other inputs from also getting either potentiated or facilitated or whatever you want to call yeah, it yeah, at the same question. time so that when you have a degradation or, 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 or decrease in expression of GLT-1, now any input that's being activated and you have more spillover and an adjacent synapse will also become activated just, just due to the diffusion right. of things. Right. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's different ways to interpret it, and that, that's definitely one of them, that basically what would normally be, um, you know, say 10,000 synaptic input, it now becomes 20,000 because you have spillover between adjacent synapses. Yeah. But you would those synapses, if they're going to actually get into the cleft and activate AMPA receptors, where the vast majority of AMPA receptors would be inside the cleft, it better not be wrapped by a glia with a bunch of GLT-1 because it will get sucked up before it gets into the synapse. Um, so... <clears throat> Getting into the cleft itself, I think, is if you assume that it's just a subpopulation of synapses that have unwrapped or maybe become imma more immature. I mean, that's another way that people think about addiction in a way is that the synapses <clears throat> are less mature. And that, of course, um, it's a mature synapse that has the tight wrapping and the GLT-1 expression. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I digressed. I'm sorry. The uh, what 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 we think is happening is that it's actually getting into unprotected areas when the, when it spills out. That there's still a lot of synapses that are protected yeah. by the glia, and it's going to unprotected areas. So where would that be? That would be outside the synaptic cleft, other places on the dendritic spine that um, that that same synapse is on, and we can definitely show that um, the the uh, 
EPSC is longer. The, the right. decay constant is longer in an addicted animal, yeah. implying that we're picking up conductances outside of the, um, the synaptic cleft, and it's, it's NR2B sensitive. So it's, it's, so that's, <clears throat> that's one thing that's happening. But also, we believe that it's getting to uh, a population of interneurons that express the nitric oxide synthase because of all the links we've found with uh, nitric oxide and, this, and the relapse event. So I think, I guess, you, rather than thinking of it as um, including more synapses, then it's this spill into more of the extracellular matrix. Yeah, then, yeah. Um, and those will, those through their signaling, will potentiate the synapses. I see. Um, it seems. And so it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, we don't know the answer. I mean, it's yeah. a very complicated picture. But you could picture that um, this cell will now activate because it's got, you know, 3,000 synaptic inputs that are potentiated versus 1,000 synaptic inputs that are potentiated. That's the simplest way to think about it. <clears throat> but that keeps it within the same engram. <clears throat> but maybe the engram grows. So normally there's only 1% of the cells that are getting enough input <clears throat> to show a CFOS increase, which is the typical way to, to quantify an engram. Now, because of this potentiative event, this spread of NOS and the, and the glutamate, now you, you know, what, what it looked like, based on just looking at AMP and NMDA ratios, it went from maybe 5% of the cells up to close to 20% of the cells. Mm -hmm. And so you're just, uh, other cells are coming out of sub-threshold. So maybe engrams aren't, maybe at any given cue, we think of it as like, okay, there's just this, 1% of the cells that are getting this input and that's coding the stimulus response or to go press the lever. Maybe there's actually, yeah, these are the ones that are most involved. Maybe there's a whole bunch of minor involvement that really never gets registered. But when we amplify the whole background situation, now you're suddenly recruiting a much larger engram. That's so, that's kind of how we think um, about it. But so how, how far does the nitric oxide... Yeah, it's from. a really good question. Actually, one of the... Um, I don't remember his name... I think he was a postdoc. He said he did his thesis on uh, one of the students at lunch um, on nitric oxide LTP in in the VTA. So you maybe yeah. So so that's what I'm asking. So the experiment. I think it was a Nugent and was the first author. It's from Julie Cowers' lab. Okay. Where um, what they found was they they found this GABA LTP and it's mediated by retrograde transport of nitric oxide. The interesting part of the experiment is that, so they're recording from one cell at a time, but when they fill the cell with BAPTA to completely chelate all calcium, the LTP disappeared, right? But you're only blocking that one nitric cell. oxide release from that one yeah. cell, and when you're stimulating the slice electrically, you're stimulating all cells in the slice, and presumably they're all releasing nitric yeah. oxide. They're doing their thing, but it's only the one cell that you blocked calcium. So... And that would seem to me that the nitric oxide doesn't just—it's lipophilic, right? So you—you you would think it just—you picture this diffuse out or just yeah, sphere growing, sphere just growing. Right, right. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that perhaps well, that there is a more I, specific way of directing. I prefer the, the specificity, I, yeah. yeah, actually, because yeah. it's just—if you just like it becomes this giant sledgehammer, you lose a lot of, and clearly. A drug-induced behavior right. is very specific right, and targeted, right. and I think it's just it's right. So it's it's 
maybe it is a more controlled amplification. We don't know. All that we can say is that, and this is in a, you know, a blind analysis. Basically, we just we take make a slice and we patch MSNs, mm-hmm. and more of them have a higher amputin MDA ratio, and more of them have a higher average uh, spine head diameter in the animal that's reinstating to the queue. Yeah. And so I don't know, and that's all prevented by inhibiting the spillover and or inhibiting the nitric oxide synthase. And so it's, uh, whether that translates into, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, how, how, how the specificity is retained in that kind of thing. It does look, I'll just throw this in, we haven't published this, it does look like it's D1 MSNs. Predominantly, that are showing it. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that helps some specificity. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Only half the cell. <laughs> there was this, there was one. There was this um, a recent study. Was it uh, Matt? Was it in 2016? Uh, I think it was Iraq at all. Um, I forgot what was lab where they where they showed where they they're stimulating astrocytes and found differential effects in D1 mediated pathway and the D2 mediated pathway. I don't and the know. D1 astrocyte, the, the astrocytes yeah. that impinge on D1 neurons only talk to other D1 neurons and the astrocytes that impinge on D2 yeah. neurons only talk to other D2 Which neurons. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> so there, there's, if, if the astropathology that we see is, uh, <laughs> maybe it's only, we just coined maybe it's only on those astrocytes, you know. <laughs> Well, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Awesome. I can't wait till it turns into the the Pentra. uh, The Penta. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Not sure what that would be. The Octoceraps. Everything else is not as obvious. I mean,